Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Look forward to having you turn there for a long time, at least in this context. I've taught through this passage before in church teaching, but as an exposition through Genesis, this is the first time. And this is a, a precious passage uh, corporately for the church, but also personally, my own walk. Uh, when I became a believer as a teenager, started to read the Bible for myself, but I confess that it was difficult to understand. I could understand portions, the you know, important features. The gospel was clear enough, but how it all tied together was kind of challenging to see, and it seemed like other people who had been reading it longer um, just got it. They just understood the flow of it and such. When I went to college and took a class, a survey class on the Bible, I remember like it was yesterday when the professor had us open to Genesis 12 and I started reading it on my own in light of what he'd already been prepping us concerning walking through the story of the Old Testament just like we did with Adam being the first person, sin coming in because of Adam, God covenanting, promising, bonding himself to send another seed, a second Adam, and that the Bible would unfold along those lines. It was making more sense to me. And then instead of crushing out humanity, um, because he had bonded himself, that grace, that commitment of grace that God made shows up again in Noah. And I can see the flow, but it's pretty wide at this point. It's still about humanity. And then we come to Genesis 12. And I'll submit to you that these verses are the most pivotal verses in the Bible apart from the revelation of the gospel of Jesus itself. It is a revelation of the gospel of Jesus. But the clarity that comes when Jesus actually comes, it, it flows from what is set up here. Uh, these verses are interpretive tools or keys for the whole of the Bible. In fact, I'll even say that you can't fully understand the Bible without understanding Genesis 12, 1 through 3 in particular, but this section, the, the so-called Abrahamic covenant. Um, it's introduced here. We see it um, enhanced more in ver chapter 15 and then even more in chapter 17. It is so critical to the message of the Bible. Um, that we understand this and what's promised here, what God does. Um, you'll see as it un unfolds, I hope. And I hope as students of the Bible, if you're newer, a newer student of the Bible, you'll appreciate why this is so, uh, so important, so preparatory. It, it lays groundwork for understanding what God does as he unfolds his plan of redemption going forward from here. Even today, it's still playing out today. Your evidence, your being here, is proof that the Abrahamic covenant is still being worked out by God. First there was Adam, then there was Noah, and now we come down to the person of Abraham. R.S. Our, our Candlish, who is a commentator of Genesis, he said that the stream of history now flows from, from a new fountainhead. As before from Adam and then from Noah, so now from Abraham, the father of the faithful and the friend of God. Here as I read God's holy word, Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they sent out to go to the land of Canaan. 
When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the oak of Morah, and at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, which Bethel, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we come to a special place in your word, the continuation of your unfolding plan of salvation, your covenant of grace, your covenant here with Abraham. The message of your word is one of salvation. The message of your word is of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we are introduced to the great ancestor of Christ, Abraham or Abram of Ur. Lord, this is a grand exposition of what you did some 4,000 years ago before us in this passage. This plan, this work of you to continue fulfilling your promise to send a seed from the woman to crush the head of the serpent. This is also the story of every Christian. You call us when we weren't looking to be called. You pour out your gracious and sure promises, even though we do not deserve any of it. And you give us faith to follow your lead. Please guide this time in your word by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. I request this in the name of Christ. Amen. It would be impossible, I think, to overstate the importance of what is described here in Genesis chapter 12. It's the place in which God unfolds the plan of redemption where Abram receives promises. He's given the ability to follow those promises, to go to a land that he had not yet known. They knew not what was coming. All of this unfolds before us in its introductory form in Genesis 12. You know, the big picture is that God now focuses in on the person of Abraham, and we see the rest of the Old Testament unfold from there and into the New. That's the big picture of God's plan or his working of redemption and the plan of salvation. But the smaller picture view, every one of us can gather a bit of us in the story of Abraham. Every Christian can relate to some degree with what happens here as God calls Abram, as God promises grace to Abram, and gives him faith and obedience to follow what he commands. Every Christian, to some degree, can appreciate this in their own life. God makes these undeserved, unearned promises a blessing to Abram, and then he delivers on them by empowering Abram to take hold of what God has promised. John Stott said, these verses are the most unifying verses in the Bible. They're the first specific unfolding of God's purposes for the world. The rest of the Bible will prove to be the outworking of verse 2 and verse 3. Ligon Duncan said, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is the center point of the promises of the covenant of grace in the history of redemption. It's true. God's covenant promises to Abram, it prepares the way for the plan of salvation, God's plan of redemption, to unfold from this point forward. You will understand the rest of the scriptures on the basis of your understanding what God promises to do here. You can't interpret other passages without first appreciating what God commits to, what he covenants, what he bonds himself to here with Abram. Let's look at this in simple form. We'll see the call of God to Abram first. We'll then see his promises. 
And finally, the faith and obedience that flows from the call of God and the promises of God. Again, this will also seem familiar to you if you're a believer, if you've trusted on Christ. You'll see the call of God to you, you'll recognize his grace to you, and you'll recognize his gift of faith and obedience that he grants to you as you walk this life with him. First, verse 1, let's see God's call to Abram. We're not told how the call came, but we know it was special. Was it an audible voice? How did God communicate? We're not told specifically, but we gather the picture that he had not spoken like this to someone in some time. At least the scripture doesn't record it. God moves here to bring the seed of the woman along through Abram by speaking to Abram. And who does he choose? I mean, who would you choose for such a monumental task? I know I would not pick an old pagan nomad and a barren wife. That would not be my choice to bring forth the seed. But God picks the weak things of this world to manifest his greatness. And he places this call upon Abram. Candlish, who I quoted earlier, said, his word, the word of God, is again on the earth now. That living word comes to Abram. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now we'll revisit the timing of this call in just a bit. But for now, we see Moses relaying what happened. Abram receives the call in very simple terms. Leave everything you know, leave your family, get out of here, and go to the place that I'm leading you to, that I'm calling you to. In verse 2, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, let's note, Abram was not looking for God's call. He was not looking for God for that matter. He was of a moon worshiping clan. We know this because several hundred years later when Joshua is ready to lead the Israelites into Canaan, he recalls what God had called them from through Abraham. In Joshua 24, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the, the, heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Naor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. You see, the call is an effectual call. It's an effective call. He's calling a person who was worshiping other gods, and he through his call that Abram has to answer, he leads him, and it says in Joshua's time, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through. So this call is a 100% effective call, and that's the so-called effectual call of God. And this appears in many ways and many forms throughout Scripture. But when God calls you, you answer. And that's what we see happening with Abraham, is he receives the call of God to leave everything and come follow him. Come follow the God of Israel. Leave the false gods behind. Candlish once again said, he is called by the Lord, and the call is very peremptory, authoritative, and commanding. It is very painful also. He has to leave his family. He has to leave his comforts. He has to leave what he knows, leave the safety he perceives, and go to where God has called him to go. Leaving a place where he had served these other gods. We know that he served these other gods, because of the places that he stayed and the way Joshua ascribes it. But now, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country 
and your kindred and your father's house. So leave the land you know, leave the family you know, and leave the resources your father left you, your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Leave the moon-worshipping place you're living, leave the world, separate, drop your attachments, follow my lead. And this is the nature of God's call to us when we come to him. He becomes our priority. We go from the earth being our priority to what God's will is, is our priority. And it's a painful separation. It doesn't happen automatically for most people. there's There's a time of disconnect that occurs. And it happens with Abram. We'll see this in a moment. Come follow me. Leave it all and come follow me. Now you'll notice this language repeats itself throughout Scripture when God calls people to himself. But it reaches a certain climax with the person of Jesus when he calls out to us. In Matthew 16, verse 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Very Abrahamic in the way Jesus tells us to follow him. For Abram, leaving also meant leaving his aged parents or his aged family anyways. To never see his kindred again, most likely. And Jesus says in Matthew 10, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, if you don't know Christ, that seems very extreme. You shouldn't ditch your parents, your family. And that's not what the call is. The call is saying that is your primary place of devotion naturally. But now in Christ, it should be completely completely devoted to God. That's who we are, to the point where comparatively we hate these others. And that's only known when you receive that call that God has placed upon that you recognize this priority is right. It must be with God. Now we hope that our families too agree and we all look to God that way. That's what you see unfolding in Abram's life. This is what unfolds in the life of every believer as he calls us to himself. Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. Leave all earthly security and go to a place, as the author of Hebrews says, not knowing where he was going. God's calling is lived out in the midst of of challenging times with questions for sure. Robert Rayburn said, God will not leave you where he found you. He didn't with Abram for sure. He's interested in taking you places that you would never have thought to go and in having you do things you never thought to do. Maybe some of you have become believers later in life and you remember what you thought like 10 years ago or 20 years ago. You can't believe your priorities now. You can't imagine how you make decisions now and it's all through the lens of the calling God has placed on you, the effectual calling to be his child and he accomplishes it ultimately through union with Christ that he places you in. Now let's continue on the, in the passage and you'll see his promises his specific promises to Abram. Some of these are specific and personal. Many of these extend beyond. Even to us, we receive the benefits of these gracious promises, this gracious covenant that God is making with Abram. Verses 2 and 3 show us five of these blessings. Verse 7 gives us another one. So there's six blessings in total, six promises in total. God's calling of Abraham, it's a vivid expression of this covenant of grace that's been unfolding. Go, Verse 1, verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's five blessings right there. Then verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, 
to your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. That's the sixth one. Let's walk through those. Verse 2. He says, first, I will make you a great nation. You've got to admit, that's laughable. A 75-year-old man with a barren wife, and I'll make you a great nation. That's the first promise, the first gracious promise he makes that shows if this is going to be done, it's going to be done because God does it. In fact, Kent Hughes said, this promise assaulted reality to promise this 75-year-old man with a barren wife that I'm going to make you a great nation. But that's the first promise. The second one, I will bless you. This is personal. Abram, I will give you security. I will give you safety, a sense of belonging. I will provide for you. I, I, will, I will watch over you. I will favor you. That's his promise, his gracious promise. He didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. He's been worshiping the moon. But I'm going to bless you. And it's true, Abram experienced on a personal level a long life comparatively to others around him, a great deal of wealth. He had all sorts of stuff. And he had a reputation in his time on earth, a reputation that kept him alive in many respects. I will bless you. That's the second of his promises. Notice also verse 2 still. I will make your name great. Now, do you remember where we heard this before? In the Tower of Babel, do you remember what the people were trying to do? Build a monument to themselves so that they could make their name great. And here God comes to Abram and says, I will make your name great. You don't have to do anything. I will make your name great. Now, he will do something, but it starts with the call and the promises before anything is done. I will make your name great. Kings, kings would eventually come from Abraham. That's what it means by his name, his house's name. He'd give a name to his house, a a name that would last on beyond him. That's what, to give a great name, it goes beyond your own life on this earth. David would come from Abraham. King David. King Solomon would come from Abraham. King Jesus would come from Abraham. I will make your name great. Also, verse 3, the promises keep unfolding, keep flowing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So with you, there will be an effective range outside of you where others will be blessed just because they're in relationship with you in a friendly way. They're your allies. They'll receive blessing. You'll have so much blessing that it'll bubble over into the people that are around you. That's the kind of blessing you will be. Also, those who curse you, you'll be, they'll be cursed. This isn't just retribution. This has to do with God's loyalty to his people to protect his people from any onslaught. Doesn't bode well for those who oppress the people of God. It's true, God will sometimes discipline his people, but if people from outside the people of God try to oppress the people of God, God will protect, God will uphold them, and God will bring down his judgment upon those who attack his church in the Old Testament and even now in these days. Also, I want you to notice in verse 3 yet another promise, a gracious promise. In you, Abraham, and this is the one that extends to all of us, in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. All the families of earth shall be blessed. It's true that when we last picked off, uh, last left off, the Tower of Babel incident accented the separation of the nations and the peoples all around. And this is a necessary act as God disperses people over the earth to exa- exert their vice regency in God's 
representation, even though they were sinful. It didn't mean that he didn't care about the nations anymore, but that he had to bring forth the seed, and he focuses in on Shem and then to Abraham, and that's the Bible story. But it gets to a point where the blessings of Abraham always were meant to reach back out to every tribe and tongue and nation with the gospel of Christ so they could be reconciled to God through Christ. It's always the plan of God in the gospel, in the Abrahamic iteration of the gospel, this explanation of the gospel, that the nations would be blessed by what he does here through Abraham. In fact, when the psalmist is praying and praising God, notice the specific words, even from an Israelite, still thinking very narrowly about the children, the the physical children of Abraham. Listen to the words of Psalm 117, because it shows you the greater picture of the Abrahamic covenant. Psalm 117, praise the Lord all nations, extol him all peoples, for great is his steadfast love for us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Now it's not an imprecatory psalm like you read sometimes, God bring down your judgment upon your enemies and those nations out there who hate you. This is a prayer that all the peoples would praise, and listen specifically, extol him all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us. He's speaking on behalf of the nations who will accept him, who will glorify him, who will praise him, who will recognize him for who he is. It says very clearly, for great is his steadfast love for us. For who? The nations, all peoples. The ultimate picture of God's salvation is that everybody can be presented with Christ as Savior. That's the goal flowing from Abraham. It may seem narrow, but that's not the end goal that God has in mind. In fact, to show you how this, you, this Abrahamic covenant understanding helps you interpret the rest of the Bible. John 3.16, probably everybody here knows it, and we just say it um, kind of in a vacuum. I, I would suggest to you, through the Abrahamic covenant, it makes a lot more sense. You have Nicodemus, who is a faithful Jew, who's seeing Jesus do what he's doing, goes to Jesus under the cover of night and says, how do I be saved? How can I know I'll be saved? And he says, and, you know, how, do I, how do I be sure I'm right with God? Now, Nicodemus is thinking specifically of his being Jewish. He's thinking of the narrowness of his house, of his lineage. And so when Jesus speaks to this Jew, Jesus, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, ultimately, he has opportunity to express the full vision of what God has in store for the world. It's not just about the Jews anymore. Listen to what he says in John 3.16 in that light. For God so loved the world, Nicodemus, not just you and the Jews, the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Nicodemus, if someone on the other part of the earth calls on upon the name of Christ, they can be saved. This is not about just you being Jewish. This is about the Savior who comes from Abraham to bless the nations so anybody on earth who confesses their sins and calls upon the name of Christ shall be saved. That's what he's saying. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus goes on to say further, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, he's talking about the nations now, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There'd be opportunity now for every person, every tribe or tongue to call upon the name of Christ. In fact, when you get to Revelation, what's that a picture of? In Revelation 7, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. What were they crying? Crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God, to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
Paul refers regularly to the fullness of the Abrahamic covenant. You can't understand Paul without understanding the Abrahamic covenant, Galatians especially. In Galatians 3, and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The final blessing, the final promise that we have in this middle section of the text, look at verse 7. To your offspring, Abraham, I will give this land, Canaan. Now that promise to Abraham harkens back to something we read not too long ago. You remember back to when we saw the division of the three sons of Noah. We came uh, to to one of the sons, Ham. He had a son, Canaan. Canaan was cursed, one of Ham's sons. And it says in Genesis 9, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servant shall he be to his brothers. They had started to populate that land. In a few hundred years, when Moses comes back through, they're going to have to conquer that land from the Canaanites. So we have that promise beginning to take place, the fulfillment of it there in verse 7. To your offspring I will give this land, Canaan. God calls and God blesses. That's what we see here. He effectually calls and he promises. Notice he doesn't say, Abraham, I need you to do this, this, and this, and then I will do this. This is God promising. This is what makes it grace. That's why it's a covenant of grace. It's undeserved favor shown to people who really only deserve wrath, and it's because of the merit of someone else. And the merit's not Abraham. The merit is in the seed that will come from Abraham. So looking ahead to what Christ would accomplish through Abraham, Abraham himself receives benefits from his eventual progeny, the seed, who will crush the head of the serpent. This is the gospel of God's grace on full display, the ultimate blessing still waiting to come through Christ. But now, Abraham, you come, follow me. Go where I lead you. That's what he's telling him. You know, like I said, if you take some common verses that you've said a bunch of times before, think of them through the Abrahamic covenant, and they're much more rich. Romans 8, we quote this often when we want to help someone through a difficult time. And that's fair, but there's a a more specific meaning. Listen to Romans 8 in light of the Abrahamic covenant, the call of God to fulfill the purpose of bringing us to Christ and bringing people to, to his glory by their worship of Christ eventually. Romans 8, and we know that for those who God love, who God loves, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? His purpose is to manifest salvation, to manifest himself to the person of Christ. That's the purpose that God has working in your life. Whatever the difficulty is, that's the purpose. That's his purpose. We know this because this is what he says it is back in Genesis. So it's true, you can use Roman day to get through a tough time, but your tough time is for the purpose of exalting Christ. That's what it's for. It'll get you through that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The call of God and the promises of God, these lead to faith and obedience. The effective call of God works faith in the one who is called. When your mom calls for you to come in and eat, you may go, you may not. If you don't, there may be a price to pay, but you can not so with the call of God. The effective call of God prompts us to action and gives us what we need to do what he's called us to do, and we see it work through in the life of Abram for sure, this response of faith and obedience. Look at verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, 
And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, I want to make a point here that maybe you hadn't thought of before, at least I hadn't. This call that is issued to Abram happens. I used to think Abram got called, and then, like the next day, he packed up and left. But as you study the Scriptures, you realize there's actually a delay in the timeline of Abram. What do I mean? Well, Abram's father, Terah, he was originally from the Ur of the Chaldeans, which was even more east than Abram started in this story. He started from where modern-day Iraq is or so, or so, the Euphrates River Valley, quite a bit east of where modern Israel is or where you could think of Israel being. So he's in the Ur of the Chaldeans. That's Terah, Abram's father. He is a moon worshiper. He goes from one moon-worshipping outpost to another one. He was going to go to Canaan, but stopped in Haran. We know this because it says in Genesis 11, Terah took Abram his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So then we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 12, and we think that Abram is in Haran, and he goes from there. Well, he does go from there, but chapter 12 actually takes a step back now and just addresses Abram. So in other words, Abram received the call before he was in Haran. He actually received the call back when he was in the Ur of the Chaldeans where his, brother, where his father was. How do I know this? Later in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Stephen is giving a sermon. He's talking about Abraham. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. So he had received the call sometime when he was in Ur. And Stephen goes on and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. After his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. My point is this. Sometimes when God makes the call and gives the promises, the immediacy of our faith outworking isn't always right away. We sometimes look at Abraham and say to people, to Christians, God said to do it, you should go do it. There's a patience here, clearly, because Abram does not go immediately. There's a a process. He travels with his father to Haran. After his father dies, then he answers the call. He answers the call. That's the point of the passage. It's not immediate necessarily. It takes some time, but he answers the call. What else would he do? Spurgeon said, God says to Abram, get out, and Abram gets out. Why? Because the call of God is divinely applied and divinely enforced. It does what it's meant to do. But I point out to you that in this case, it took a little time. It wasn't as immediate as at least I thought it was when I've heard the story told before. Clearly, there was some time now as he went forth. Verse 4 again. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. There's a process of leaving. The point is that he obeyed God's call. Faith in God and his call led Abram away from the security that he had under his father's house to a place unknown. I've tried to think of this in the difficulty of this because we just read it so quickly and even though I've mentioned there's a process involved that had to be painful for him, uh, it, there's more to this. This isn't a day and age where you, when you left, you weren't going back where you were from. You weren't going to see your loved ones any longer. You're leaving by, behind many things, leaving to an unknown much of which you may not have ever got to realize. I often think of this when I, when I look back at even how 
I ended up in this country. Many of you have a similar story. I have a grandfather who decides in Sicily that he's going to leave in 1911 to go to America based on things he's heard. He hasn't seen anything, not even pictures, just heard about it. But he thought it has to be better than the hopelessness that is here and this poverty that he lived in. So he gets on basically a shipping boat. It's not a passenger boat. Um, pays to get to be in the hull of the boat, to go over the ocean, get, go to Ellis Island, and basically can't speak English, can't read or write even in Italian, only wrote an X everywhere he ever signed his name. And they say to him at some point, you know, what did you do in Sicily? And he sulfur mines. So they said, well, we got something like that here, and they send you to Pennsylvania to coal mine. He does that for a couple years. I don't know what happens in that time frame. I do know the, the rumor we heard is that a friend said to him, I've got a sister back in Sicily. You can marry her. He gets back on another boat, goes back to Sicily, all before World War I now, which happens in 1914. Does this in a two-and-a-half-year period. He meets her, marries her, gets back in a boat again, third crossing, and comes back to, back to Pennsylvania. She died at age 48 after having 12 children in the home. He died 72. He's 10 years older than her. I never met. Most of my cousins, we've never met our grandparents. He didn't meet his grandchildren. But I'm convinced in his mind he came because he thought it would be better for us, who he's not even ever going to meet, to come here and to go through all of that. For things he would never even see realized, couldn't have thought he'd see it realized. But he did that, and now I'm here. I mean, I enjoy the life I enjoy. And many of us have this story. Here's Abram, called by God to go to a place he does not yet know. What exists there? Say goodbye to everything you have and go to this place for the promise that I will, that I'm giving you the vision I have for you. And by faith, Abram goes. By faith, he goes. It's the faith that God gives him that makes him go. And he goes to lay hold of what God has promised. In verse 5, And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. He's got a whole household, a whole company of people. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. This is a 600-mile trek he takes. He does a, a survey through the promised land. Remember, Abram never really stays in the promised land long. He gets to the, to the bottom of it, the south of it, and then the famine occurs, and his family goes to Egypt. He's basically doing a tour, a, a vision trip of what God's going to give his, eventually his ancestors. And he goes and he stops after 600 miles at Shechem, a very important place in the Bible. And he stops at this oak tree, this special oak tree. Shechem was significant because multiple times in the Old Testament, we'll see it come up again, it's a point of decision. He gets there, it's the point in Deuteronomy where there's a choice that the people of God have to make between the Mount of Blessing and the Mount of Curse. Then later, Joshua in Joshua 24, which I've cited a few times, his final address before they take the promised land, he stands there at Shechem. Then Shechem is where Solomon's kingdom was divided after his reign in 1 Kings 12. It's a place of decision in the Old Testament. It says in verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the Oak of Morah. This must have been a big, a big noteworthy tree, a place of divination, many would suggest a pagan place of worship. It's, it's known by its name. Um, it's where oracles were received by, by pagan, from pagan gods, a place of soothsaying, uh, a shrine of sorts. And he comes to this place and calls upon the true God who called him. You know, I was thinking of this tree and what it would be like to come upon it, this religious symbol, no doubt, in those days. 
there's a tree, a huge tree, right near Columbia, Missouri. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's called the Big Tree. It's 400 plus years old. It's a burr oak tree. And it's right off the Katy Trail. Every year I stop and I look at this thing because I'm amazed. 100 feet tall, and it's got a crown of 130 feet itself. It's massive. Struck by lightning a couple years ago. It's looking pretty sick. Not looking well. But every time I go, no matter what time I go, there's people gathered around it, kind of looking up at it in some kind of awe. Sometimes it seems like they, they treat it as some kind of divine thing because it's so old in such a young country, relatively. And there it is, on a floodplain. It looks beautiful. They've even taken this and they've cloned it and people have acorns from it buried in their yards all over the state of Missouri and beyond because it's so special to them. I imagine the Oak of Mammoth, some big, of Morris, some big tree like this that was a place of worship for the pagans. And so here comes Abram. He sees this, this probably legendary tree, and now he calls upon God who's called. Remember, his background's not too deep. He doesn't have a creed or a confession at this point. He's just simply standing in a place on the cusp of this, in the middle of this land that he's been called to be his. He sees Canaanites everywhere. There's their tree. He calls out to his God. And it says in verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord there who had appeared to him. The true and living God speaks to him at this point, And he doesn't want the tree to be the thing people look to. He builds an altar that symbolizes that the true God spoke to him. He doesn't attribute it to the tree. He instead sees God has talked to him and he makes and builds an altar unto the true God. This is a, a show of his faith, a show of his laying hold of the God of Israel, the true and living God who would send him the Savior, who was his Savior. Then look what he does. He doesn't stay there. Verse 8. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And notice what he does again. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. This is so significant. Let us not go too quickly here. What does he do? He pitches his tent, which is symbolizing the place he would live and stay. It's a tent, so it's temporary. He just sets it up and he can take it down. Sets it up and takes it down. It's because he's impermanent. That's who he is as a person. He's a nomad, but he builds an altar for worship. That's going to outlast him. The only relic left in this land should be this altar to God, not anything that showed you Abraham lived here. By the way, the only relic that should live in this land, hopefully, would be this building, not us. Who cares about us? Or if this building gets mowed down, whatever, some other thing, some other church, whatever, until Jesus comes again. It's not about the people who built it or the people who preach here. It's about the God who's called us to him. And we just live in tents. They come and they go. But we build altars to him, um, symbolically and really, so that we can say to the world, look to the living God who called us out of slavery. Don't look to us Look to that God. So when someone goes back by wherever Abraham was, they see an altar there, and the altar points those people to the true and living God. And what he's doing in worship is public. Um, this is a huge company of people. This isn't just Abraham going off and having his quiet time. This is a massive public gathering of acknowledgement of the God of the Bible, the true God. And he's saying it publicly and declaring it so all the Canaanites see it. There's a sense in which public worship of the people of God is evangelistic. When we do what God's called us to do, it's going to be strange to the world, but it's the very thing the world needs as a testimony to the true and living God. If it looks like everything else, they're going to think it's just another show of earth. But when it's done according to what God says to do, there will be some strangeness to it. And the people will seem a bit strange because our devotion is to the true and living God. We don't want you to look at us. We want you to look at our God. 
And that's what Abram starts to have built in his life because of the faith God's given him, and that's what he does when he pitches a tent, but he builds an altar. Kidner, the commentator, said, the only structures left behind him were altars, no relics of his own wealth. Historically, Christians would sometimes build churches before they would build their own homes. Abram journeyed on, verse 9, still going toward the Negev. He moves south towards the Dead Sea. That's where he'll be. We'll, Lord willing, study much of uh, Abram's life then coming up and seeing all the various ways in which God continues to grow this faith. What is this faith he has, this trust? It's belief. It's, it's reliance. It's dependence upon God. And it says in the Bible that Abraham believed God, and that is what counted to him as righteousness. He believed in God's provision for salvation, and that's counted to him. It's credited to him as righteousness. It's not that he obeyed God, and it was credited him to righteousness. He was called by God, given gracious promises by God. He was led by God. He had faith in God, who was saving him, and that's counted to him as righteousness. Same for us. We believe God's promise of salvation through Christ. That's counted to us as righteousness. One in particular, what Christ has done. It's credited to us because by faith we believe it. We believe in the gospel. God says, declares us to be sinners. We know it's true. How can we be right with him then? He says, I give you Christ. Rest in him and his work on your behalf. He pays for your sins. He pays for all your punishment. Rest in him. Rely upon him. Depend upon him. Believe upon him. Have faith in him. And it's credited to you as righteousness. It's the same gospel. From the time it's announced to Adam... It's preserved through Noah, and now it's brought to a beautiful head, an interpretive head. We see from this, this fountainhead the rest of what the Scripture unfolds right to your personal life, how it is that we have been blessed. God has blessed the nations through Abraham by, of course, ultimately bringing to us Christ. I want to conclude by noting just one more connection with Abrahamic language with some common verses you know. The Abrahamic covenant here says, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and so on. Jesus says in Matthew 28, before he ascends into heaven, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. I'll be a bless- you'll be a blessing to the nations. Now he's saying, post his finished work, now you can go tell everybody. You could go to make disciples of all the nations. That's how the blessing will occur, is the gospel will go forth, and they'll hear how they can be right with God as well. Meredith Klein said, by its identification with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Abrahamic covenant is seen to be a promissory anticipation of the new covenant in Christ. Further, he says, God's saving grace through Jesus Christ is thus the underlying explanation of the redemptive blessings provided through the covenant of promises to Abraham. Here in Genesis 12, let's not miss it. Go read it and reread it again. This is the place where God most clearly now unfolds his plan of redemption. Abraham called to follow him. In the big picture view, it was Abraham as the next one to take the redemptive torch from Noah and lead it on. But the smaller picture view, it's a bit of a paradigm for God's work of salvation in all who are his. God issues an effectual call that you can't turn down. He makes undeserved, unearned promises of blessing because of the merit of one to still to come. Then he gives faith 
the faith necessary to follow him and obey. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we see your call to Abram and your promises made to him. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So now we know that it is those of faith who are the sons and daughters of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, justify us by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, Abraham, in you all the nations will be blessed. So then, O Lord, we can see plainly those who are of faith are, are blessed along with Abraham. That's us. The God of Abraham, we praise you. That, that man of faith, Abraham, who's a, a picture, a paradigm of what you'll do in us. O Lord, in Christ, that great, great seed of the woman, in him we are truly blessed. I thank you and I praise you in his name. Amen. Let's together respond uh, with a hymn uh, written to appreciate our connection to Abraham like this. Number 34, let's stand and sing verses 1 through 4 as the elders and the